During the week, uh, Kate and I uh, made an observation about Bonnie. And and, uh, her response was, I will not be uh, bound by your rules. And we thought, well, that's a bit interesting. Uh, We didn't think they were rules. They were just kind of uh, observations that we'd made over a number of years from things that she'd done and said. Uh, And we were a little surprised by the response. But it made me think about God. The fact that we make observations of how God has behaved and we, how we read the Bible, and then we make rules for God. Now, in some ways, those rules are good because we say that God is faithful and can be trusted and to be able to have faith in God then we need to be able to, and to be able to honour that God is faithful, we need to be able to expect that God will behave in a predictable way. But my suspicion is that a lot of the time, God is saying exactly what Bonnie is saying. I will not be bound by your rules. Because that's what they are. They are observations that we make, and then out of that we say, well, this is how God will act. In fact, on many occasions, we as Christians say, this is how God must act. And then we interpret everything else out of those rules. Now, our reading this morning from Jeremiah is an example where God says, as Bonnie said, I will not be defined by your rules. Jeremiah lived in a time where the Israelite people, the Israelite people, the people of Judah, understood God to be not the God, but a God, their God, and the most powerful God. So everyone else had their own God, and their God looked after their people. But the people, the God of the Hebrew people of the two tribes to the south, Judah and Benjamin, their God was a powerful God. And their God would beat the other gods and they would be kept safe. And on the basis of that, all the advice to the king had been, God will protect us. Because that's what the rule said. That's what their experience was. That's what they said should happen. And they said, God, this is what should happen. But then, catastrophe. The Babylonians overwhelmed them. Jerusalem fell, and the king and a whole lot of the leadership was taken off into exile. Now, a whole lot of the so-called prophets then said, in light of all of that, they held fast to the rules. Our God is a powerful God. Our God will defeat the other gods. We will be safe, so don't make homes down there. You will return home soon. But Jeremiah says something entirely different. He says two very surprising things. The first thing Jeremiah says, as we heard last year in our Lenten studies, there is only one God, our God, and our God is God of all people. 
Now that sounds pretty straightforward to us because we're used to that rule. But for the people of that time, that was an outrageous thing to say. Because they all had their own gods. Their god looked after them. Those gods over there look after them. God's concern is us. What do you mean God's concern is those people over there? That's stupid. And then Jeremiah says, and you might as well make yourselves comfortable, boys and girls, because you ain't coming home anytime soon. You are going to stay in exile. Why? Partly for punishment, but actually mostly so that you can be a blessing. God's blessing to God's people who just captured you. Imagine how they felt with Jeremiah saying that. You will be a blessing for the very people who have just defeated you and dragged you off into exile. Strangely, not many people wanted to listen to Jeremiah. But his words survived because eventually people understood that the rules that they defined God by actually were their rules and not God's rules. And that Jeremiah was the one that was actually speaking on behalf of God. God climbed out of the box that they had made for God and said, I'm not staying there. I'm doing an entirely different thing. And God keeps saying that to us. Our reading from Luke this morning, I think is also can be understood in a very similar way. It's a story which we usually understand to mean about giving thanks, as I said. But actually, thanks isn't really a big thing in this story. The story is set with a Samaritan in it. Now, there are three stories in Luke with Samaritans. The first is when the Samaritan village will not receive Jesus because he's going to Jerusalem, which is all fair enough and acceptable and uh, expected because, well, Samaritans didn't think much of Jerusalem and uh, they had their own place of worship. Uh, The Samaritans were the remnant of the ten tribes to the north and a few other people they'd intermarried with. Uh, So they're bound by the Mosaic law, but their centre of worship was in Samaria, not down in Jerusalem. And there are still Samaritans today with their own high priest. Not too many of them, but a few. And uh, so no one would have expected somebody going to Jerusalem to be made particularly welcome in a Samaritan village. The next time we meet a Samaritan is in the story of the Good Samaritan, a story Jesus tells in answer to the question, Who is my neighbour? Now, there are very clear, set answers to that, which fitted the rules around God and how God operated and how we should operate in light of that. And when the man asked, who is my neighbour, he expected Jesus to give one of those very clear answers. But instead, Jesus tells a story about a Samaritan, and at the end of it he says, who then acted as a neighbour to this man? Jesus radically redefined who the neighbour was. And in doing so, radically redefined who God cared for. Even Samaritans. Even Samaritans. Oh my goodness. It's a wonder he wasn't hung up on a cross on the spot. And then we meet a Samaritan in the story. 
So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem again, and he's going through a border region between Samaria, full of Samaritans, don't like Jews, and Galileans, Jews, don't like Samaritans. So he enters a village, and there are ten lepers there. Now, lepers are not the same as lepers today. They don't have Hansen's disease. It's very unlikely Hansen's disease was in the Middle East at that time. It was any kind of skin disease. But the effect was the same. If you got these skin diseases, which you could be cured from, so there are a whole lot of rituals that happen if you are cured, Uh, but if you do get a skin disease, you are effectively declared dead. You lose your identity, you lose your place in the community, you are pushed outside the village, and you are to live as an outsider. And so we have ten lepers greeting Jesus on his way in. And the remarkable thing about it is that there, by all accounts, nine Galileans, Jews, and one Samaritan. So you can see how being a leper has stripped them of all their previous identities, which strips them of all their previous animosities, and they are now clumped together, nine Galileans and one Samaritan, Nine Jews, one Samaritan, living together outside the village. And Jesus sees them, and he tells them, go to the priest and do as Moses commands. He doesn't heal them, he just says, go to the priest and do as Moses commands. Now we all hear that to be, go down to Jerusalem and do what Moses commands, but actually the Samaritan wouldn't have gone anywhere near Jerusalem. He would have gone into Samaria to his own priests to do what Moses commanded. On the way they see that they are healed. So, what should they do at that point? Well, actually, nine do exactly what Jesus commanded him to do, commanded them to do. They carry on to Jerusalem to see the priest to do as Moses commanded. That's what Jesus said they should do. That's what the law of Moses said they should do. So they go and do it. And we usually read that story and go, look at those ungrateful nine people. They should have gone back. But in fact, they do exactly what Jesus commands and exactly as the law commands. They obey the rules around how they should act and they obey the rules around that because that's how God should act. But the Samaritan... The Samaritan comes back. Now by, this is a Galilean village. We know that because Jesus says, this foreigner. So this is not a Samaritan village. This is a Galilean village. This is a Jewish village. So he does not go and do what Jesus commands. He does not do what Moses commands. He comes back to a dangerous place. To a Samaritan, to a Galilean village, to a Jewish village. And there he prostrates himself. Now we see that as a a way of saying thank you, but actually what he's doing is honouring Jesus. This is an honest situation. Jesus has done something for him. He is now beholden to him as a kind of um, patron. And he comes back and honours Jesus as he has to do. Now, at this point, Jesus should probably tell him to go off to see his priest and do what Moses commands. But instead, he talks about, where are the other nine? Well, they're they're doing what you told them to do. And then, 
he does a very interesting thing. He takes the place of a Samaritan priest and he ignores all that you're supposed to do to be declared whole and he restores this person to life. Now when you go and see a priest, there are a whole lot of ritual washings that you have to do over a certain period of time with a few sacrifices so that the priest can make sure that you are healed and if you are healed, they do what is needed next. They restore you to life. They declare you alive. They place your identity back upon you and you are restored to your community. And if they don't do that, you might as well still have leprosy. Because you can't go home. You are still effectively dead. But Jesus stands in the place of a Samaritan priest, Jesus the Jew, and effectively declares this person restored to life and restored to his community. Now, I'm pretty sure the Samaritans wouldn't have paid any attention to that and he still would have had to go through all those things, but that's what Jesus does. Now, all the rules about God said Jesus shouldn't be able to do that, that Jesus shouldn't do that, partly because Jesus isn't a priest and partly because this guy's a Samaritan in in any case. And Jesus should have nothing to do with him because he's a Samaritan. Now in Luke's Gospel, as I said, we meet Samaritans in three places. And two of those places are very, very demanding. The law is summarised as we should love the Lord our God with all our mind and body and heart and soul and we should love our neighbour as ourselves. In Luke's Gospel, it is a Samaritan that shows what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body and soul. In this story, this Samaritan breaks the Mosaic Law and returns to Jesus and praises God. He shows what it means to really love God. And in Luke's Gospel... In the parable of the Good Samaritan, it is a Samaritan who shows them what it truly means to love your neighbour as yourself. Now, all the rules said God loves God's chosen people, the descendants of Judah and Benjamin, and kind of has a concern for other people, but God really doesn't like Samaritans really, really doesn't like Samaritans. And yet in Luke's Gospel, it is the Samaritans that Jesus uses to teach everyone else what it means to love God and to love your neighbour. It's kind of like using an Al-Qaeda terrorist as an example of what it really means to be a Christian in a church in America. It's that inflammatory. Jesus is breaking all kinds of rules and saying God is a whole lot bigger than we really want God to be. Last weekend, Jackie and I and a couple of others from church went to a thing on marriage. Uh, We as an Anglican church are having to do some work on what we understand marriage to be um, because there's lots of questions being asked And we need to be clear about what marriage is. 
Now, you might think we're clear, but in fact, we have a whole lot of answers. We have a whole lot of answers that are in the Book of Common Prayer, in our prayer book, and in our canons. And so, before we can address any of the other issues, we want to be clear about what we, in this province, understand marriage to be. So, every diocese is being asked to go through this process. And it was quite a good day. Uh, the morning we had a presentation of what marriage means in the wider society, so that was quite interesting. Uh, there was a presentation on marriage in the Bible, uh, which was very interesting. I think we got bogged down at the beginning, which meant some of the stuff at the end uh, kind of got rushed. Uh, so I hope Howard sorts that out for the next time. And then we had a presentation on what the canons say marriage is, with a little bit from our prayer book. During the course of that, we had some conversation, uh, and at the end of that, we had a conversation about what we, as a, in small groups, could then agree on as a whole group of what marriage was, which some groups found very easy and other groups found not so easy. My, my group was one of the ones that found it not so easy um, for some reason. Uh, during the presentation uh, about the biblical understandings of marriage, Howard took us through a quick kind of historical scan from very early Old Testament through to New Testament and talked about some of the changes. And some of the people said, well, those changes occurred because Jesus came. Marriage was polygamous and various other things in the Old Covenant, but Jesus came with the New Covenant, and so a lot of those things changed. But actually, a lot of those things changed well before Jesus. I suspect they actually changed when Alexander the Great stomped his way through the Middle East and imposed Hellenistic culture on them. The Greeks went so into polygamy and other things. So where the Greek influence waned, polygamy continued, and where the Greeks were in charge, polygamy disappeared pretty quickly. And it made me wonder. One of the rules we have about God is that God works through the church. I've just finished listening to a history of the Catholic and Orthodox churches, and repeatedly... The person who wrote this book said, God works through the church. We are God's people. God works through us. And I went, well, that's a fascinating rule. I wonder who made that rule up. I wonder if God made that rule up or whether we made that rule up. And I suspect we made that rule up because it makes us feel a lot better about ourselves. And as I listened to that book, I went, how could God possibly only work through the church? We were so busy fighting each other, we didn't have time to do anything else. I wonder at times whether God works through God's activity in society, like God worked through Alexander the Great, and then said to the people of God, uh, I'm doing this thing over here, how about you guys taking notice and catching up? That's a pretty radical thing. Not everyone's going to be happy with that idea that God doesn't need the church to act. And in fact, sometimes God says to us, you're a little bit slow, catch up, I'm way ahead of you. It's just a wonder that I let you think about. But the real question I think that comes out of this is going back to my initial story. What are the rules that we tie God up into? And how do they stop us seeing God's activity just as it stopped 
the people at Jeremiah's time seeing God's activity, just as it stopped the people of Jesus' time seeing God's activity? How does it stop us seeing God's activity in the world around us? And how do our rules stop us seeing and hearing God in Scripture? Because, for example, we come to the story we heard from the Gospels this morning and thinking it's all about being thankful. In fact, it's not really. Our rules blind us to what's really going on there. How are we blinded by our rules? And what rules do we need to let go of, to let God be God?